Family, if you've got your Bible, open to Revelation chapter 10. Revelation 10 is where we're going to be today, and we're talking about proclamation, the calling that we have to be proclaimers. I got some experience being a proclaimer uh, when I was pretty young. When I was a freshman in college, I got a job as a DJ at this indie rock station near my college uh, there in Los Angeles, and uh, I was the newbie, so they gave me the 1 a.m. to 4 a.m. time slot. Not the best slot you can get, but it didn't matter. I was famous, I was powerful, I was on a mission to bring good music to the good people of Los Angeles. It was fantastic. I had so much fun for a couple months. And then my station manager, after I'd been there a couple months, came to me and he wanted me to do a contest during my time slot to give away two free tickets to a concert with Toad the Wet Sprocket. Any of you guys remember Toad the Wet Sprocket? You remember? Generation X Unite right there. Yeah. They were big. They were so huge for like two weeks, and then they were gone after that. Um, but they were on the top of the, uh, they were on MTV, they were huge at this time. Everybody was talking about Toad the Wet Sprocket. And so my time slot came, I got on the air, I was playing some music, and then I put on my best radio DJ voice. And I said, hey, if you are the 11th caller, you and a friend can go see Toad the Wet Sprocket live. So call in now. And then I put on the next song, and I waited, and the phone didn't ring. Waited a few more minutes, the phone didn't ring. So after the song was done, I was like, okay, if you're the fourth caller, you get these tickets to Toad the Wet Sprocket. Crickets. After the next song, first caller gets these tickets. Not a peep. And that's when it finally dawned on me that for two months, I had been talking to nobody but myself all night long. It was terrible. But you know what? I think we as Christians, I think a lot of us do the same thing. I do. I think we talk a lot to each other and only to each other. We talk to ourselves because we, we read our Bibles and pray and learn about Jesus, and then we write in our prayer journals about Jesus, and we come to church and we sing praise songs about Jesus, and we go to community group and we talk about Jesus, but we never go and tell anybody else about Jesus. We just keep talking to ourselves. Man, we've been given a commission to go and tell, a commission to go and make disciples of all the nations and to teach them about Jesus because it says in Romans 10, faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. We got to let people hear the message of Christ. We got to let people know about the life and death of Christ, about the resurrection of Christ, about the return of Christ. Because we've seen in Revelation that drumbeat is getting louder and louder every day. The end of all things is getting closer and closer. The return of Christ is getting closer and closer. And we've seen in Revelation how. Jesus is progressively unsealing this scroll. He's unsealing God's last will and testament. Jesus is the executor of God's will. He's the one carrying out God's will. And we know from the rest of the Bible what God's will is for the world. 2 Peter 3 says, God does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance. God does not want any to perish but all to come to repentance. So God's will for the world is to reconcile with the world. God's will for the world is for the world to repent of their sin and come to him for forgiveness. 
Unfortunately, we've all got a different will than that. Every single one of us, in our natural state, our will is to do life on our own and, and save ourselves. God has to supernaturally work in our hearts to, to bring our hearts to life in order to change that. Because without that supernatural divine work of God in our hearts, we just keep trying to save ourselves. We saw that last week in Revelation 9. We saw all of these judgments of God that are going to come. We saw some pretty terrifying things that, that the world has to look forward to. Just natural disasters leading to supernatural disasters and demonic oppression. And you would think when the world goes through all of that, it would drive them to, to turn to the one true God. You would think it would make people wake up, but it's not going to, according to Revelation Let's remind ourselves in Revelation 9, what it says is going to happen. The rest of the people who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands to stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, which cannot see, hear, or walk. And they did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So God's judgment on the world doesn't bring repentance to the world. That's just not how it works. People just double down on their idolatry. Like, when we see natural disasters, when we see them around, that doesn't make us automatically turn to God. What do we do? We try and come up with some new technology to make disasters less disastrous. We turn to ourselves. When we see wars, when we see violence in the world, that doesn't automatically point us to God, make us turn to God. What do we do? We, we try and come up, come up with laws and regulations and new organizations that will try and make people less violent. We turn to the things that we ourselves make. We double down on it, things that cannot see, hear, or walk. People don't just drift towards Jesus. That's not what we do. People need somebody to tell them about Jesus. And that's why we're going to get a commission here in chapter 10. God is going to tell us, you must prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You've got to spread the word to all the peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You've got to tell them that Jesus is king. You've got to tell them that Jesus, the slaughtered lamb, is on the throne, and that king is coming back. That's the message that God's going to commission John to proclaim and that he wants us to proclaim. Because our aunties and our uncles, our friends and our neighbors, our classmates and our coworkers desperately need Jesus. So let's pray. And we'll see this commission that we've got. Father, thank you for this incredible gift that you've given us in Jesus. Thank you for the hope, joy, peace, that Jesus brings, like we've been singing about all morning. But Lord, don't allow us to hoard that gift. Don't allow us to just enjoy that gift by ourselves. Don't allow us to just keep talking to ourselves about this gift. Help us to share that gift with the people that you've put in our lives. Today, I pray that you would empower us Equip us, challenge us, encourage us to go and tell.
It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we saw last week God's judgment in the world doesn't lead to repentance in the world. So here's how God responds. We're going to pick it up in Revelation 10, verse 1. Revelation 10, 1. John says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud, with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun. His legs were like pillars of fire. Keep that image in the back of your head. And he held a little scroll opened in his hand. He put his right foot on the sea and his left on the land. And he called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he cried out, the seven thunders raised their voices. Okay, so this angel, he's crying out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. It's got to be loud because he wants the whole world to hear. He's saying, we've got a message that applies to everyone on the planet. This applies to the whole world. That's why he's got one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. Okay, in the ancient world, if you were a general leading a conquering army, the way you claimed a new territory was to put one foot onto that new territory. You'd have one foot in the sea, one foot on the land, and by putting that foot on the land, you were saying, I claim this land for my king. That's what this angel is saying. He's saying, my king, King Jesus, he owns this land. What is this land? This land is the whole world. So this message applies to the whole world. This message that we've been commissioned to bring, the message of Christ, it applies to everyone. So that's the first thing we got to know. Our message is universal. The message we've been commissioned to bring, it's universal. It applies to everyone in the world. And that is a really countercultural thing to believe. Really countercultural. Because most of the people in our culture don't think that anything applies to everyone. Most people believe that we all see truth in different ways. We all see reality in different ways. We all see God in different ways. And every different perspective is valid. And so a lot of us as Christians have drifted into that kind of thinking too. Which is why we don't want to impose on other people. We don't want to appear like we're too arrogant and tell them this is how you should see God and this is what God's will is for you. Because we've drifted into the same kind of belief that we're all just a bunch of blind men trying to figure out what an elephant is. One blind man feels the elephant's tail, and he says, oh, an elephant is like a snake. Another blind man feels the elephant's side, and he says, oh, an elephant is like a wall. And another blind man feels the elephant's leg, and he says, oh, an elephant is like a tree. And the idea is, well, they're all partially right and partially wrong. Because we're all limited, and so we, we can all only see part of God. That's the kind of idea that our culture puts forward. But here's the problem with that idea. You can only say that the blind men are only sensing part of the elephant if you can see the whole elephant. That's the only way you can say that. You've got to be the only seeing person to be able to tell all these blind men that they're only partially right. So I know it sounds really humble to say that everybody's perspective is valid, and everybody's faith is, is equal, everybody has a partial view of God. That seems humble to say that, but in reality, it's extremely arrogant. It's so arrogant, because you're saying that you are the only person in the world who can see 
and all of these other people are blind. If you say nobody's got a monopoly on faith, what you're saying is, I'm the only one who has a monopoly on faith. You don't believe that everybody's faith is equal. You believe that your faith is better than everybody else's. And we drift into that kind of thinking. Another problem is when we're dealing with issues of faith, we're dealing with with a, a level of reality that is so much bigger than just personal preference. That's how a lot of people view faith. It's just a personal preference. It's kind of like going to lunch with a friend. You go to, like, Korean barbecue, and you order meat, John, and your friend orders kalbi. You're not going to try and convince each other that you're wrong, right? No, kalbi is the wrong decision. You're not going to try and do that. It's just lunch. You're just making a decision for lunch. Well, the problem is the options for faith are not the same as the options for lunch. You're dealing with huge issues. Man, you're dealing with, like, why we're here on earth. Who put us here? How we relate to the world around us. What happens after we die, man? The consequences of that decision are way bigger than the consequences for your lunch decision. What you believe about God and and his will for us, it's less like different food options on a menu and more like the options between different doctors who need to diagnose something wrong with you. If you got a mole on your back, and you go to three different doctors, let's say the first one is like, oh, that could be cancer, might not. Why don't we do a biopsy, just to be safe? Then you go to the second doctor, and he's like, no, that is definitely cancer, and you're going to die next week if we don't take it off today. You go to the third doctor, and he's like, ah, it's probably not that big of a deal. It, it kind of looks like Mickey Mouse. It's kind of cool. I don't know why you would want to get rid of that. I mean, I, I think you should keep it. I think it's awesome. Okay, the decision that you make between those three doctors is a life or death decision. It's not like the decision you made for lunch. This is on a whole different level. And that's what this angel in Revelation is showing us. You remember how he has legs that are like fiery pillars? Well, what kind of effect does fire have? It can have two different effects. It can either be destructive or it can be purifying, right? It can either crush you or it can cleanse you. It can either break you or beautify you. Fire can do two different things. Well, we know from Revelation, especially what we covered last week, 8 and 9, that God's fire is coming. Increasingly, it is coming. And it's going to destroy the people who haven't put their faith in Christ but it's going to deliver the people who have put their faith in Christ. And we don't know when that fire is coming. We don't know. Look at what it says in verse 4. Verse 4, John says, When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up what the seven thunders said and do not write it down. What is he saying there? He's saying there's some things coming in the future that John didn't write down. There's some things coming in the world that God didn't want us to know about. So what that tells us is Revelation is not an exhaustive guide to the future, okay? We can't perfectly match the events of this book to the events of history. It's not a one-to-one match. 
God's given us a really good idea of what to expect on the road ahead. He is not giving us turn-by-turn directions of what to do and where to go on the road ahead. That's why he gave us his spirit. That's why he gave us the family of Jesus. There's going to be so many times in life when we're just not going to have any clue what we're supposed to do. There'll be some good principles in God's word, but not specific practices and guidelines to go by. And those are the moments when we're going to need to desperately depend on God in prayer and receive his guidance and his help and his power through the Holy Spirit. When we're going to have to go to mature and, and wise members of the body of Christ and get their wisdom, get their help. Especially when we're bringing the message of Christ to a world that's that's more and more hostile to Christ. Keep going in verse 5. John says, Then the angel that I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. He swore by the one who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it. And he said, There will no longer be a delay. But in the days when the seventh angel will blow his trumpet, then the mystery of God will be completed as he announced to his servants, the prophets. You remember what his servants were talking about back in chapter 6, what the saints were praying back in chapter 6? Lord, how long? How long until you judge those who live on the earth? In other words, how long are you going to allow evil to keep going in the earth? How long are you going to wait? Well, here's the answer. There will no longer be a delay. At some point, that's what God's going to say. There will no longer be a delay. Before, back in chapter 6, he told the saints, you're going to have to rest for a little while. You're going to have to wait. Because there's more Christians who are going to have to be martyred because there are more people that I want to save and bring into my kingdom. Okay, that's the reality that we're living in right now, family. That's the reality. We're living in 2 Peter 3. The Lord is being patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the the era that we're living in right now. But one day in the future, that time of patience is going to be complete. Someday in the future, God's going to say, there will no longer be a delay. And we don't know when that day is coming. We don't know. So here's the second thing we got to understand. Our message is urgent. Our message is really, really urgent because we don't know. We don't know the day when God's judgment is coming. We don't know the day when Jesus is returning. He's coming like a thief in the night. That's what the Bible says over and over again. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Jesus said, be alert. Be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this. If the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He said, your life is like a house, and there's a thief coming to rob your house. He's coming sometime tonight, but you don't know what time he's coming. So you got to be prepared all the time. You can't wait to prepare for something until the moment it comes. It's too late then. Like about seven or eight years ago, there was a huge storm 
that flooded the whole back of our house. All flooded. It was terrible. And of course, I was in Vietnam when that happened. And so it was Cindy and the kids were small at that point. And so if I had known that the storm of the century was coming, before I left, I would have put sandbags all around the back of my house, protected my house. I didn't know it was coming. So it's the middle of the night here, and I'm in Vietnam, and I'm having to call up friends going, hey, could you go help out my family, please? They're, they're, they're going to drown in this water. You know, I, I'm freaking out over there, having to get them to come help out. And then when I get home, there's a huge mess to clean up. Yeah, when the storm comes, it's too late to prepare. And when Jesus comes, it's too late to prepare. That's why Jesus says, you got to be prepared all the time. All the time. Because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. Jesus is coming at an hour that your aunties and uncles don't expect. He's coming at an hour your friends and your neighbors don't expect. He's coming at an hour that your classmates and coworkers don't expect. And so you've got to give them a chance to prepare. You've got to give them a warning. You have to. If they were crossing the street and you saw a cement truck driving straight towards them, you'd yell at them, you'd scream at them, you'd run out into the road and tackle them. Well, the cement truck of God's justice, his judgment is coming. It's heading straight for them. And so we've got to warn them. Our message is urgent. It is so urgent. then there's hope because third, our message is powerful. Our message is powerful. It's going to have an effect on people. The message of Christ, it's going to make an impact on people. Look at what John says in verse 8. Verse 8, he says, then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It'll be bitter in your stomach, but it'll be as sweet as honey in your mouth. Because this message, the message of Jesus, it's powerful. It's powerfully bitter, and at the same time, it's powerfully sweet. It's not neutral. It's not neutral. It's going to cause some kind of reaction. When people hear about Jesus, they're going to say, this is the best thing I've ever heard in my life. This is the best thing I've tasted in my life. Or they're going to say, this is the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. They're not going to be in between. Like Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, to some, we are an aroma of death leading to death. But to others, we are an aroma of life leading to life. Yeah, to some people, Jesus smells like death. To other people, he smells like life. But he doesn't smell like nothing. There should be nobody in the world, us first of all, who hear the message of Jesus for the first time or the millionth time and go, meh, meh. I read a story a while ago about this prince in Europe who was arrested and 
sentenced to life in prison. This was back in the 1600s, 1700s, something like that. And so he was put in a cell and given one book to read for the rest of his life, the Bible. For 30 years, he had nothing to do but read the Bible. So finally, after 30 years, he died. They went in to clean his cell, and they found all these notes that he had scrawled on the walls of his cell. Notes like Psalm 118.8 is the middle verse of the Bible. Ezra 7.21 contains all of the letter of the alphabet except the letter J. The ninth verse of the eighth chapter of Esther is the longest verse in the Bible. No word or name of more than six syllables can be found in the Bible. This guy spent 30 years with God's word, and the only thing he got out of it was trivia. Just trivia. So we got to be asking ourselves, what do we get out of God's word? What do we get out of the message of Christ? Trivia, interesting facts, weird questions from the strange stories in the Bible. What do we get out of it? Why do you read God's word? Is it just a check mark to put in a box to say, I did my daily devotionals? Do you read God's word to have something to impress your community group on Tuesday night? Is it so you've got something to use to argue with your friend at work the next morning? Why do you read God's word? What do you get out of God's word? Are you drinking in the message of Christ? Are you allowing your soul to, to marinate in it? Asking God to transform you through it? I mean, yeah, the message of Christ is bitter when it shows us our sin. It's bitter. But it is so ridiculously sweet when it shows us God's grace. It's the sweetest thing in the world. So, family, if... If God's word, if the message of Christ is not sweet to you, if it's not amazingly sweet to you, how are you ever going to convince anybody else that it should be sweet for them? How's that going to work? Because God's word says, the message of Christ says, you won the lottery. You've been given the riches of Christ. You didn't deserve it, but you have. Jesus died to take away your sin. He rose to give you new life. He's reigning in heaven now, blessing you through the Holy Spirit, and he's using you to expand his kingdom through the whole world. Jesus is the sweetest thing you've ever experienced in your life. He's the sweetest thing you've ever tasted in life, and that's what John is experiencing right here. Look at how he closes out this chapter in verse 10. Verse 10, he says, Then I took the little scroll from the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I ate it, my stomach became bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Okay, so there's two commands John was given. Eat the scroll and then share the scroll. Ingest the message and then proclaim the message. Because the message is sweet. It is so sweet. The message says Jesus is the king and he's coming back. Things are going to get better. Way better. That's the sweet part. But here's the bitter part. It's going to get worse before it gets better. There's judgment involved. There's tribulation involved. There's suffering involved. And so 
for the people who know Jesus, it's going to be bittersweet. We're going to see victory through judgment, like we saw last week. It'll be bittersweet for us. For the people who don't know Jesus, it's only going to be bitter. There's only judgment to look forward to. And so that's why we got to keep proclaiming the message. That's why we got to keep proclaiming Jesus to the people's nations, languages, and kings. You got to keep proclaiming the message to your aunties and uncles, your friends and your neighbors, your classmates and your coworkers. You got to keep inviting them to trust Jesus so they can be delivered from his judgment, so they can receive all of his blessings, so they can win the lottery just like you did. Man, you've got a billion dollars in your bank account right now, and you've got another winning lottery ticket in your hand to give away. It's sitting there in your hand. Proverbs 3.27 says, do not withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. Do not withhold good from the one to whom it belongs. You've got a winning lottery ticket that belongs to somebody in your life. It belongs to them. How can you withhold it from them? It belongs to your neighbor across the street. It belongs to your coworker in the next cubicle. It belongs to your cousin who lives on Kauai. It belongs to somebody. How can you withhold it from them? You're like, well, my LGBT cousin is going to be offended. Or maybe you're like, well, my, my Buddhist neighbor is going to be confused. Well, my agnostic coworker is just going to be too busy, not going to be interested. Maybe. Yeah, it's possible. But the cement truck is coming. The cement truck is coming, and that lottery ticket is waiting. And I guarantee you that your friends, your family, your coworkers are way more open to hearing about that lottery ticket than you think they are. I guarantee it. Especially during this season. This month, the people you know are looking for reasons to be thankful in life. They're actively looking for things to be grateful for. In life, why not give them the greatest thing in the world to be grateful for? Next month, everybody you know is going to be looking for peace on earth and goodwill towards man. They're going to be listening to songs about Jesus all month long. People are more open over the next month and a half than they will be for the next year. How can you withhold good? from those to whom it belongs. You've already got the billion dollars in your account. Now that ticket is waiting for you to give away. Who are you giving it to? Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you, thank you for giving us this winning lottery ticket that all of us have received through Jesus. We didn't deserve it. We didn't work for it. We didn't earn it. We didn't even put down the dollar to buy the ticket. Jesus did. And now we're just living in the lavish riches of his blessing. Thank you for all that we have in Christ. But Lord, don't let us hoard that blessing. Don't let us just 
sit here in this nice air-conditioned room and protect that blessing from the, the enemies outside. They are not our enemies. They are victims of the enemy. Help us to remember that. Help us to go out of here with love, with compassion, with boldness, and with hope. Knowing that you are the king, that you're expanding your territory, that you have sheep who are not yet of this fold, and there are people in our lives who you have called, who you will save. Point us towards those people this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.